Hello and welcome. This is 21. Episode 1.3 For the first time. Welcome back to 21. Last week we concluded our visit to the first wonder on our list, Abu Simbel. As promised, this week we're going to stay with Abu Simbel and dive into the account of the Battle of Kadesh, which was inscribed on the walls and pillars of the Great Temple. This is the main story of the Great Temple and was a monumental moment in the ancient world. What happened both during and after this battle were firsts in the ancient world and would change the future of warfare. It was also the launch point from where Ramses II began to transform himself into Ramses the Great. I have some maps depicting this battle up on the website 21wanderspodcast.com so you can follow along with the whole thing. Now to set the stage. The Battle of Kadesh was fought in 1275 BC between the Egyptians and their rivals to the north, the Hittites. The Hittites were a people who originated from modern-day Turkey. By 1275 BC, their empire had become one of the strongest in the ancient world. Their empire consisted almost the entire Asia Minor Peninsula, modern-day Turkey, and stretched as far south as modern-day Lebanon. As you recall from our first episode, the Egyptian empire at this time stretched all the way up the eastern Mediterranean. As such, the southernmost border of the Hittite empire was up against the Egyptians' northernmost border. And right there, just about on that border, was the city of Kadesh. Both empires saw the city as both a buffer against the other, and also as a potential staging ground and base for an invasion of the other. The city had changed hands more than a few times throughout its history, as both the Hittites and the Egyptians went back and forth as the dominant power in the region. When Ramses II came to power, Kadesh was in Hittite hands. Ramses II was still a young man and a young ruler when he decided that Kadesh was going to be ground zero for his campaign to return Egypt to a superpower, and he was going to be the one to lead them there. The young pharaoh gathered up his army of about 20,000 men and split them into two groups. The first and larger group went with the pharaoh as they began making the long march up the Mediterranean coast towards the northern edge of his border. All of his about 2,500 chariots were with this main force. Now chariots were perhaps the most important part of an ancient army. They were used either to flank the enemy or smash through their fortified front lines. The Egyptian chariots were unique but incredibly effective in the ancient world. A traditional chariot would require two men and a team of two to four horses to pull it. One man would drive the horse team while the other would do most of the fighting. Armed with a long spear or even a sword at times, these chariots were frightening to watch bear down on you as you stood there on the front lines. But this type of smash-mouth warfare was costly in men, horses, and chariots. But the Egyptian chariots were different. They were much lighter, smaller, and quicker than the traditional chariot. These smaller and quicker chariots were more effective at flanking the enemy or charging into a weak section of the enemy line. 
Also, instead of a heavy spear, Egyptian charioteers were armed with incredibly strong composite bows. This allowed them to pick off men and horses without endangering themselves, their chariots, or their horses. These chariots were a big reason why the Egyptian army was able to conquer so much territory throughout the years. With his chariots with the bulk of his army, Pharaoh Ramses sent the other, smaller group up the coast on board ships. The plan was quite simple. To have them disembark north of Kadesh and swing down on top of the city to trap whatever Hittite army was there against his main force and this sea force. This move would prove to be a lifesaver for Ramses II. The Hittites had no idea that the second army even existed. But before we move on to the battle, I want to detour for a moment to talk about the two armies in play here. As I mentioned earlier, the Egyptian army consisted of about 20,000 foot soldiers and about 2,500 chariots. The majority of these soldiers were Egyptian, highly trained and disciplined. This discipline and training were certainly an advantage against a larger but perhaps less disciplined force. A force similar to that of the Hittites. When the conflict with Ramses got underway, the Hittites weren't necessarily looking for a fight but they would certainly look to finish it. The Hittite king, Muwatali, gave command of the army to his brother, General Hatasuli. The number of Hittite troops under his command numbered anywhere from about 2,000 to 4,000 chariots and about 23,000 to 50,000 infantry. The second and larger number for both the chariots and the infantry in the Hittite army were likely fabricated by Ramses II to make it seem like he defeated an enemy that was bigger than it actually was. Either way, accounts from both Egyptian and Hittite sources say that the Hittites probably had a slightly larger army than the Egyptians. But the two armies could not have been more different. The Egyptian army was a little bit smaller, quicker, and more disciplined, where the Hittite army was large, powerful, but a little untoward. While the majority of the foot soldiers in the Egyptian army were Egyptian, the Hittite army was composed more of mercenaries. While highly skilled in combat, these mercenaries did not add to the discipline or the structure of the Hittite infantry. Now, this does not mean that the Egyptians did not employ mercenaries. In fact, as Ramses marched north to Kadesh, he made sure to pick up as many mercenaries as he could along the way. However, the majority of the base of his army were his own Egyptian soldiers. But nothing demonstrates the differences between the two armies than their chariots. As we previously mentioned, the Egyptian chariots were smaller, quicker, and more deadly from range, more like a mobile artillery than anything else. The Hittite chariots, in contrast, were more like tanks. Wider and heavier than even the traditional chariots, the Hittite chariots had three men pulled by a team of specially bred horses. One man drove the team, another had a spear, and another had a shield and sometimes a short bow. These chariots would pick up all kinds of speed and crash headlong into the enemy lines. Once they had broken through, the third charioteer, the one usually armed with the spear, would jump off the chariot and begin stabbing at the dazed and stunned enemy soldiers. 
These three-man chariots were a ferocious fighting force and rightfully feared across ancient Mesopotamia. Both the Egyptian and the Hittite chariots were peaks of opposite ends of the chariot spectrum. Despite having the small numerical advantage, though, the Hittite generals were concerned about the upcoming battle. As we previously mentioned, the Egyptian soldiers were well-trained and more disciplined than the Hittites were. And especially in ancient times, discipline of your army could make or break not just a battle, but an entire empire. So the Hittite generals came up with a rather clever defense that utilized surprise and a quick strike, hoping to negate the discipline of the Egyptian forces. They moved their army to a spot north of Kadesh, where the Egyptians would not be able to see it when they marched up to the city. Then they sent out false informers, saying that the Hittite army wasn't close to Kadesh. They spread the rumor that the army was still several hundred miles away in the major Hittite city of Aleppo, thus making the city appear undefended. They also disguised these men as spies, so Ramses II would be more inclined to believe them once he captured them. All of this was designed to lure the Egyptians into a false sense of security and lower their guard as they approached the city. And they fell for it. A young Ramses II, maybe because he was young and lacked experience or just wanted to believe what he was hearing, took this information at face value and continued to proceed with his attack. Outside of these men, the Egyptian army ran into zero trouble as they marched up from Egypt. As they marched towards Kadesh, Ramses II split his army into four divisions and ordered them to march some distance apart. While this was a bold move for sure, this allowed his army to live off the land, as there would be time for both the food and water sources to be replenished after one division had moved through a certain area, but before the one following it got there. This allowed Ramses II to move his army rather quickly up the Mediterranean coast, as they didn't have to be slowed by extensive supply lines. By marching his army so quickly north, Ramses was hoping to cut down on the time that the Hittites had to prepare, but also expanded his army by snatching up mercenaries before Hittite envoys could get to them. Ramses probably thought that he was so clever, marching his army as quickly as he could and getting to Kadesh before anyone would have anticipated. But King Muwatali was ready. He had already raised his army and had them in position behind Kadesh before the Egyptian army ever arrived. As Ramses approached the city, it looked exactly as he was told it would be. It appeared alone. Completely unaware of the Hittite army, he brought his army up from the south, marched past the city, and began to set up camp on a small plain to the northwest of the city. The Egyptians were in no hurry to set up their defenses around the camp. Ramses and his generals immediately began to plan for their attack on the city. As they were settling in, though, the Hittites launched their surprise attack. Coming around the city with their large, heavy chariots and about 5,000 archers, the Hittites began attacking the rear line of the Egyptian army as they were still making their way into camp. These troops were shocked to see the entire Hittite chariot army barreling towards them. They began to attempt to flee north past their camp, but they were no match for the speed of the Hittite chariots. 
These chariots chased the Egyptian soldiers all the way to their camp, broke through the light Egyptian defenses, and began to plow their way through the entire camp. The Egyptian army, completely caught by surprise that the entire Hittite chariot army was there, turned and tried to flee. Even the officers of the Egyptian army turned and began to run, leaving the young pharaoh completely alone and exposed. If the Battle of Kadesh had ended then and there with the death or capture of Ramses II, history could have looked very different. Abu Simbel would never have been built, and the text describing this battle would tell of a major Egyptian defeat, and not the rise of arguably the greatest pharaoh in Egyptian history. It seemed as though the young pharaoh, eager for glory, riches, and fame, had led the majority of the Egyptian army into a slaughterhouse. But then something unexpected happened which turned the tide of the battle. Up to this point, it seemed like the Hittite plan was flawless, and its execution was equal to it. It looked as though the Hittites were going to smash the Egyptian army. But then the Hittite chariots ran into an unexpected problem. The plain where the Egyptians had set up their camp was rather small. All the equipment, tents, and other accessories were packed in close and tight. As the Hittite chariots began racing through the Egyptian camp, they began to hit some of the Egyptian equipment, throwing the charioteers from their chariots, breaking the chariot wheels, and causing a pileup of chariots. All of a sudden, in the heart of the Egyptian camp, the Hittites lost their main advantage. The question would be, could the Egyptians rally and take advantage? It is also here where we come to a gray area of the battle. The reliefs on Abu Simbel, which describe what transpired during this part of the battle, seem partially biased, casting Ramses II and the battle into a magnificent victorious light, which is not what happened according to the other sources we have of the battle. Either way, at the most desperate hour, Ramses II elevated himself from pharaoh to legend. With his two choices being a surrender and most likely death, or fighting and most likely death, Ramses made the only choice he could as Pharaoh. Alone, surrounded by Hittite chariots and charioteers, he called upon Amun, his chief god, picked up his sword, and began to fight the Hittites single-handedly. Now, while the idea of the Pharaoh single-handedly fighting off the enemies of Egypt makes for a great story, that is not the whole truth of the battle. As far as we know, Ramses did pick up his sword and began to fight the onrushing Hittite charioteers. Ramses' superior military training began to show as he cut down man after man who approached him. While Ramses was fighting the Hittites, his main army was rushing past him, fleeing to the north. Some of them, as they ran past and saw their pharaoh fighting the Hittites, they were inspired by his success. The Egyptian army rallied to their pharaoh and entered the battle. The Hittites still had a chance to rout the Egyptian forces then and there, but they held their larger infantry forces back from the initial attack. Why they did this, no one is really sure. Perhaps it is because word did not get back to the commanding officers in time that the chariots were becoming useless in the Egyptian camp, and now it had turned into more of a traditional battle, where the infantry would have been needed. It's highly possible that the commanding officers saw the early initial success of the chariots and wanted to save their infantry 
in case the Egyptians fled north into Hittite lands. Besides, the way the battle was developing, controlling a large force in that small space would have been difficult. It would have just been absolute chaos. With the Hittites already with the apparent upper hand, keeping their infantry in reserve seemed wise at the time. And it would have been had this been the entire Egyptian army. But King Mutawali knew nothing about the second seaborne Egyptian army. Whatever the case was, this lack of intelligence was yet another lifesaver for Ramses II. As the battle continued, the other Egyptian force, the one that Ramses sent by sea, arrived at the city. With Egyptian forces suddenly potentially surrounding the city, the Hittites withdrew from the battle and began to move their troops back into Kadesh. This retreat proved to be costly, though, as the Egyptians cut down a number of the Hittite forces as they retreated. As the dust settled on the first day of battle at Kadesh, the second Egyptian force joined the main one. With his forces now joined and the element of surprise now gone for the Hittites, Ramses had to have been happy with the state of the battle after day one. I mean, at the start of the day, it looked like him, his entire army, and his subsequent relief army were going to be destroyed one by one. The fact that they were still a good number had to have been a relief. As the next day dawned, the Egyptians drew up their lines for battle. The Hittites came out of Kadesh and lined up opposite of them. The battle went exactly as the Hittite generals had feared. And despite the Hittites having the greater numbers, the superior training and discipline of the Egyptians proved to be too much for the Hittite army, and the Egyptians held their ground. However, this did not come without cost for Ramses II. His army suffered heavy casualties. As the second day of the battle began to draw to a close, Ramses II began to realize that there was not much more he was going to be able to do. Despite the failure of the initial Hittite charge, the Egyptian camp was in shambles. And despite the fact that they had just held their ground, the Egyptians were in no place to pursue their advantage. Realizing this, Ramses II and King Muwatali made history. In 1275 BC, the Egyptians and the Hittites signed one of the first peace treaties in military history that we have record of. The Battle of Kadesh ended in a draw. Both sides saw what the other was capable of. And they both knew that it would cost too many men, materials, and wealth to conquer the other. Instead, both sides agreed to a lasting peace agreement. The Battle of Kadesh is also the first battle in which we have a detailed record of. Details such as the number of troops, their movements, the commanding officers, strategies, a transcription of the battle. All of these things had never been done before. This attention to detail of a military campaign would become the norm throughout history. The reliefs and engravings describing the Battle of Kadesh dominate the atrium of the Great Temple of Abu Simbel. While these carvings are a great place to learn about the Battle of Kadesh, we do have to take them with a grain of salt. Remember, Abu Simbel was built pretty much as a propaganda for Ramses II, so some embellishment in details does occur. But it is not all embellishment. Amongst the reliefs and pillars and the walls of the atrium, 
we are told that Ramses II took the daughter of King Muatali as a wife in honor of this peace agreement. This was also a first in the ancient world that we have a record of. When a marriage between two royal families of differing empires took place, it was usually to establish a new alliance, a promise that if one side was attacked, the other would come to their aid. But the marriage of Ramses and this Hittite princess was different. Rather than establishing a new treaty, it was to solidify a peace that Ramses and Muatali already signed. The Battle of Kadesh, while not the out-and-out victory that Ramses wanted, was not a complete failure either. And it would not be too long before the Hittites began to crumble. But the Egyptians would not be too far behind them. But for Ramses II, the Battle of Kadesh served his purposes. He did not lose, so in his mind and the mind of the Egyptians, he won. And he built Abu Simbel in part to commemorate his success at the Battle of Kadesh. Little did he know at the time, though, by describing the battle on the walls, he was giving us an unprecedented view of one of the most important battles that history would see. The Battle of Kadesh concludes our visit to Abu Simbel, a truly remarkable feat of engineering that deserves its spot on the top of this list. However, next week, we will move on and look at the next wonder on our list. This wonder was actually considered initially to be one of the wonders of the ancient world by our favorite ancient historians. Only hundreds of years later did it get booted off that list. Not for any fault of its own, though. The next wonder on our list is truly unique, for it is one of the few wonders on this list which was used by people every day. But we will look at all of that next week when we turn to look at the second of our 21 Wonders of the Ancient World. Get